episode, my friend Eric Jurgens and I are going to be looking at horror comedies. These are premises that sound like horror movies, but that are more in service of laughs than they are in service of scares. How do you balance these two things? Is it okay to have too much funny or too much scares? What makes a good horror comedy? That is the subject we will discuss this week, and you should go into it understanding that there will be coarse language, and there will be spoilers for the six films discussed. After it's all said and done and we've made our ranks, you can choose to agree or disagree, and please send your feedback to me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. You have great taste in podcasts. Please tell a friend. Um, Eric Jurgens, welcome back to Rank and Review. Thank you for coming back once again. Uh, this is the 126th episode of Rank and Review. How does that make you feel? <laughs> it makes me feel like I should have organized this a little bit sooner so I could have been 125. I know that's not a centennial or anything, but it, it feels nicer. Yeah, well, how about think of it this way? I sort of think of every 25 episodes as a season, that's roughly a year. So oh, so this is the season opener. This is the premiere episode of season, uh, I guess, six of uh, Rank and Review. So, so we need to answer some of the questions from the last episode, but also raise enough that people are interested for the next one. The cliffhanger from last week's zombie episode. Yeah, what do we do? <laughs> Will there ever be more zombie movies? Will there be more zombie movies? <laughs> I think at the time that we spoke, six more actually just got made, so you're in luck. <laughs> yeah, um... There was a, a video game that went viral around the time of the uh, the post 9-11 war in the Middle East where it was like uh, drop bombs on the terrorists, but every terrorist that you'd explode would turn into 10 terrorists, and then every one of those explode would turn into 10 more terrorists, and you couldn't win the game, it just turned the world into terrorists. That's sort of what, what independent zombie movies are right now. You, you, <laughs> you watch one and three more, and then you watch those, and there's nine more. Zombie, but but we're not here to talk about zombies. We're here to talk about horror comedies, and I guess that's the question that I can we'd ask about these movies. Like, to me, when it's done really well, horror comedy is like the chocolate and peanut butter of cinema. But a lot of the time, what happens is one will overtake the other. It'll either basically be a comedy or basically become a horror movie. I will argue that in the case of most of these movies, that's definitely what's happened. 
to the good or bad of each individual movie we can discuss. But I guess my first question would be, why this list, brother? So the way, uh, I know this isn't formal in any way, the way we kind of do these is we'll do one for you, one for me, <laughs> where uh, I'll suggest a set of movies and be like, hey, I really want to do musicals because I just need to get my public opinions of Les Mis out there. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, what was the other one I selected? I don't know. There was Batman another one I selected. Spider-Man. Um, yeah. Well, we did we did the, the Dark Knight and uh, Spider-Man one. And then we did Historic um, Horrors. Yeah, and then so after that, I did I picked historic horror specifically to go outside of my comfort zone. Right. Um, and uh, then we did musicals, which uh, like I wasn't a fan of all those movies, as you can tell. But this was a list I was passionate about, at least to some extent. Uh, so once again, when you gave me the list uh, for people at home who don't know, when you're asked to do not to give away too much, but mm. when you're asked to do an episode of Rank and Review, Larry will send you uh, just a sheet of uh, covers, and you get to pick the six that appeal. Yeah. Um. There was one, and I'm not gonna, don't want to give away future episodes. Uh, it's one that my wife actually picked that was really appealing to me, and that was my first. I was like, oh, I've got to do these movies. And then I was like, hold up, this is a Larry episode. <laughs> Which one of these would I like to talk about? But I also feel the least comfortable with, and I'm the least familiar with. And um, it seemed that the comedic horror struck that uh, balance. There's a lot of. Uh, movies in here. Actually, I don't think I've seen any... No, I saw... I've seen Pick of Destiny. Um, but outside of that, I had not seen any of them. Even The Burbs, which is, I think, a pretty pop culture... Uh, it's part of the zeitgeist, I would say. Most people have seen it. If you were around when that came out, you sort of have a vague memory of it, I think. Um, as far as how deep it dubs into pop culture, I guess we can debate it. Weird coincidence, though. Uh, they made a made-for-television sequel of The Burbs, like a TV movie, starring okay. a guy named Bob Balaban. Bob Balaban's like a small, uh, like, uh, supporting player actor, does a lot of, like, the Christopher Guest movies. He also coincidentally tried his hand in directing in a movie we're going to talk about called Parents. Weird, weird, we're all connected. Glitch in the Matrix, I don't know. <laughs> it's... That was, yeah, the, the vaguely uh, Balaban-connected movies. That was this list. <laughs> um, if you Did you ever see Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson? I have, yes. He's the guy who narrates that movie. Oh, interesting. The little dude with the beard who's like pops up to just sort of introduce the next chapter every now and then. <laughs> Rock on. Yeah, so anyway, uh, we're going to talk about his movie. Um it's a weird bunch of movies, and uh, I'm surprised that you hadn't seen Young Frankenstein before because I happen to know your wife's a huge Mel Brooks fan. So. She insisted on watching it with me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I have a weird list of movies that people who... Like, you're the only one uh, that I know that I'd be like, okay, hey, comfortably Larry has seen more movies than me. But outside <laughs> of that, normally I'm the heavyweight of like, no one no one out-movies Eric. Um, I'm just older than said, you, that's all you're saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That being said, I have a weird list of movies. Uh, I would have put the verbs on there until now. Uh, where it seems like I should have seen them, yet I have not. Yeah. Uh, all but one of the Indiana Jones movies, for example, I have not seen. Wow. Wow, that's shocking yeah. to me. As a cineast, I, as a cinema right? fan, you should probably do that. <laughs> I should, probably should. Uh, maybe this Friday I have nothing planned. But it's the thing, it's just, I, it's just never Indiana Jones Day, I guess. I don't know. Um... <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so... It was time. I'm not surprised that you're surprised that I've not seen Young Frankenstein, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I think that a lot of these ones are easy easy watches, you know? They're just like something yeah. that... They won't, they won't go down that difficult. You can talk your girlfriend into watching it if she's not into horror movies, right? There's, mm-hmm. there, there's kind of a sweetness to some of these movies. Maybe not all of them, but to some of them. Um, and that might undercut the horror aspect. Uh, we'll get into it for some of them, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know what more I want to say by way of introduction, so how about we just list off the six movies, unless there's something more you'd like to say. There's nothing more I'd like to say. Let's get into it. <laughs> um, some guy who kills people. This is from director Jack Perez, and it's from executive producer John Landis. I don't think he had really much of a creative hand in it. He just sort of uh, uh, put his name on the project and, and knighted them with his, you know, I don't know, <laughs> lucky American Werewolf in London sword. <laughs> yep. And said, go make a, a, a charming movie. Uh, we're going to talk about Ghost Town. This is from writer David Kep, who does a lot of like uh, the blockbuster screenplay work for like uh, Steven Spielberg and Ron Howard, but who I used to consider a director of interest because he did a couple of movies I really liked in the 90s especially. There's a film called The Trigger Effect and the film called Stir of Echoes that I quite enjoyed. Anyway, David Kep tries his hand at the uh, romantic comedy, I guess, in Ghost Town. Then we're going to talk about Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny, the huge bomb that, that kind of put to an abrupt halt the the popularity train that was Jack Black for a time. Um, then we're going to talk about The Burbs, the one of the last sort of tentpole Tom Hanks comedies before he became the, quote, serious actor that we now know. We're going to talk about an obscure and strange 80s horror movie called Parents, and we'll finish it off with Young Frankenstein. Um, for me personally, I don't want to like wreck the list already. The fact that Young Frankenstein's on the list really starts a hard curve for the rest of the movies. I have a personal attachment to that movie, and it will rank very high on the list. Spoilers. So um, if you didn't like Young Frankenstein, can I just ask right out the gate to be gentle with me? <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Well, let's get there, brother. You like to make people laugh, boy? Get your life back on track. You're 34, you're working in an ice cream parlor. Boy, you're on street duty. It's up, Minty. Oh, right. I knew there was something. Your daughter's here. I will trade you my number for another scoop. Sure. Um, throw in $2.90 and you got yourself a deal. Hey, Toots. Why don't you stop by the surplus store sometime? Clearly you're into damaged goods. Where'd you go last night? I had uh, things to do. I had to meet a friend. This thing had no head, honey. I know, sir. Most bodies have head. Absolutely. Where's this thing's head? Not sure yet, sir. Oh, we can find it head. Good idea, sir. Get your ass home. A little busy right now, huh? Somebody did old Wade in good. Decapitado. Ah! 
hospital turned you into a zombie kid, right? You had no business even being there. Our guy knew his victim, knew him and hated him. It's hard to imagine what those guys did to him. But whatever it was, it stuck. I wanted to kill them, Sheriff. I wanted to kill them more than anything. Bob ahead, sir. Bring it on over. It's like his eyes follow you. So, uh, Kevin Corrigan has been around and as long as I remember watching movies. One of the first movies I remember watching at a fairly young age uh, that really I connected to almost completely was Strangely Goodfellas. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Corrigan has a small part as Ray Liotta's younger brother in Goodfellas. He's in a wheelchair and it, he stirs the pasta during the last climactic sequences of uh, of Goodfellas. Uh, he's just a, another one of the complicated ingredients that is being documented during the main character's downfall. But he's a guy who keeps on popping up in things I like. When I watch almost no sitcoms, but I watch Community. And he popped up in community and uh, he just he's a guy who just would forever show up, usually in small rows, usually sort of in the background in things that I liked. And one of the more interesting things that I will say to start out about some guy who kills people is it was kind of interesting to see this background character suddenly moved into the center stage because he feels like a background character. I guess the question that I will ask is, is that a bad thing? Is this character almost so passive as to, you know, make a movie centered around him not justified? <laughs> My answer to that would be they definitely wrote it properly. Um, I think you use the word passive, um, and this character is a very passively written character to the, I'd say, benefit of the narrative overall, because the idea is you you don't know if you want to find him endearing or not, because, spoil. oh yeah, you probably already said this, there will be spoilers. Yes. Um, the movie's trying to tell us that he is this some guy who's killing people. We see repeatedly flashbacks of him being horribly abused. And we see him stalking these people, and we see these people being killed by a masked assailant. But the movie's also going out of its way by introducing us to his, you know, young daughter who he's reconnecting with, and this charming British, charming British lady he's romancing, uh, uh, actress from Shaun of the Dead. I can't remember the name of the actress off the top of my was head right now. That Karen Black? No, Karen Black was his mother. Um, Ariel Grade. I couldn't say. I can't remember her name. She's a British actress. She was in Shaun of the Dead. She was uh, the uh, yeah one of the one of the almost survivors of Shaun of the Dead. Anyway, um, we we like him because we kind of see this awkward romance blooming, and we're sort of cheering for that. And we like that his daughter's coming back into his life and sort of making him, you know, open up and sort of access you know emotions that he seemed to be actively suppressing, but. You know, we also know that he'd spent some time in a mental institution and that, you know, he's in his late 30s, early 40s and he's working at an ice cream shop and not really looking forward, you know. So is he this killer, which the movie's really it's trying so much to tell us the killer that it kind of almost over overweights the twist, if you ask me. Like I started just to not believe it because the movie was trying to make me believe it so implicitly. Um 
Which is too bad because I think there is enough set up that, and maybe that, that was part of the problem is that the movie is like, okay, we've set up that he has the motive, the means, and whatnot. And then you're, like I said, you're almost rooting for him or fully rooting for him if you're me. And you're like, yeah, cool, kill those guys, they suck. Yeah. Um, and then the movie is like, it, it really drives it home in the third act. Like, man, he sure is killing these people. And you're like, oh, is he? Because yeah. the thing, the, the way it's paced is that by the time that the movie stresses that he's killing people, there's still enough movie left that you're like, okay, for this to play out interestingly at all, he needs to not be killing them. Right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Lucy Davis as Stephanie. Lucy Davis was in China of the Dead. She was the you. girlfriend of the glasses guy. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because I didn't, yeah, I just didn't want her to be the Shaun of the Dead chick. I'm really bad for that. Uh, no, because <laughs> I really do like her. I do think that she's she's charming and that you kind of uh, get her being charmed by him because she he seems like as much of an outsider as she does in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the other question I would like, and I like generally I, I I feel warm towards the movie, like I want to like the movie, but I see these flaws. I guess I will just in earnest ask this: Is it funny or is it scary? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, it's got moments of being funny, but I don't yeah. think I'm ever really on a any. It, yeah, none of the. None the of only the real... time I was ever scared for anyone was when the daughter wandered upon the actual killer. Right. And that's the point where I was like, okay, I feel like your safety is threatened. You're probably not going to die just because of the kind of movie this is. But it, it, it still felt like there was some tension there. Elsewise, no. And in fact, I think they probably, to the movie's benefit, they did turn things that would have otherwise been horror moments into comedic moments with the murders. Right. Right. Uh, first of all, we don't empathize with anybody who dies in this movie. And secondly, the police are portrayed in a bumbling but sort of strangely Fargo-esque kind of way in that superficially they come off as idiots, but they do do the police work. <laughs> their, their detached strangeness is actually almost... A professional aloofness. It's just a mask that they're wearing in a weird way. And I thought that was interesting enough. But I didn't laugh out loud a lot. It was kind of a movie that was just sort of warm and friendly. Considering all the violence that was happening to the left and right, it almost felt like a family comedy. <laughs> yeah. Here's a story about a troubled man. Uh, sad sack character. I guess arguably what most movies would describe as a loser. You know, um, he divorced, no good relationship with his daughter, not much of a spine. His best friend uh, is, you know, this troubled kid who works in an ice cream shop who uh, seems to relate with him completely, even though there's like a 20-year age gap between the two of them. Um, And yeah, you get the feeling like if his daughter didn't walk into his life and reintroduce herself, that uh, he would have missed this entire angle uh, to himself. Let me take that as a moment to say that if his daughter didn't walk into the movie at the time she did, I almost would have walked out. It it really played the, man, this guy is going nowhere and nothing's happening angle really hard for the first half hour. Yeah. And I think that the curb of your enthusiasm sort of ouch, oh my god, that's embarrassing humor, uh, actually sort of becomes off-putting after a point. Even at the time the movie should be giving him some wins, when he tries to defend his daughter from the bullies, he ends up crashing his car, 
shit like that, you know, like, yeah, that's funny, but it's also awful at the same time. And it's awful when I kind of feel like narratively, we need that character to have a win. (laughs) Um, But again, I like where the movie's heart's at. And it's interesting that John Landis is uh, producing it. It kind of reminds me of uh, a John Landis movie called Into the Night from the 80s with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer, very young in their careers. In that that movie is also sort of like this one. It's not exactly frightening. It's not exactly funny. It sort of hovers in this weird sort of entertaining middle ground of something. It passes the time. I certainly don't regret my time with some guy who kills people, but would I encourage someone else to watch it? Would I say, oh yeah, you really need to watch this movie? I was like, it's a decent movie. It's fine. But I mean, I'm, I'm far from foaming at the mouth over it, you know? Yes. Um, I, I actually think if anything, this movie was too highly produced. Yeah. I think that it would have come across as much more endearing if I found out that a couple of friends had made this with an iPhone or something like that, or not even to put it down that much, but like if it was a, a production on the level that something like you or I had done, right. where because uh, it is simple enough in premise, and like we've said before, it goes pretty goofy with the kills in a way that kind of masks the production value. If it was even more indie than it was, right. I think I would have been a little bit more drawn to it. As it was, it felt, like I said, kind of stale almost into the first half hour. And then the daughter comes along, and she is endearing enough. And that actress, the, she good job, child actor. She works in enough, uh, enough intrigue into uh, the narrative that I was then watching it for her mostly. Right. Um, but it, it, it is really close, I think, to being a boring movie even. Yeah, that sounds harsh, but I understand why you would say that. Um, and I watched it. This was my second pass for the podcast. So, like, uh, I kind of knew where the movie was going and uh, knowing the, quote, twist. I felt the twist coming the first time, but definitely knowing it the second time, it, it kind of hurts it a little bit. But you're right. That little girl is absolutely the heart of the movie and probably the performance of the movie. Part of this this whole movie kind of exists as it was leftovers of John Landis. John Landis was sort of developing a couple of scripts that he was going to direct. One was this one, Some Guy Who Kills People, and the other one was Burke and Hare. He ended up dropping this one and doing Burke and Hare instead. Now, there was nothing saying he was John Landis. If he really wanted to do both movies, he probably could have done both movies. But for whatever reason, that's the way things played out. And so these guys who'd been with the movie in the pre-production sort of got his name on the picture, used his name to get a cast, and used that cast to make a movie. And it's mm-hmm. good enough. It's like something that if you were channel surfing and it fell upon you, yeah, sure, give it a shot. It'll, it'll, it'll pass the time well enough. But as far as me being amped and enthusiastic about recommending it to the world, no, it's, it's another one of these movies, which I seem to be bumping into a lot these days, where I sort of think, it's fine. <laughs> the more the, I mean the more you watch stuff I mean, I'm surprised that it's these days and not earlier on considering how many movies you have seen the more you watch stuff the more that median of okay this is the average movie happens right um I you mentioned channel surfing and I would put forward in the day of Netflix I have a lot more trouble recommending this to someone who wasn't explicitly into indie or 
I'd say even comedies. I think a horror fan would have a tougher time swallowing this than maybe a comedy fan, even though I didn't find the movie super, super funny. Right. And that's the thing. We're talking about horror comedies on this list. And there's a, there's a movies on this list that made me laugh out loud a lot. And uh, I guess there wasn't too many that made me feel creeped out. I guess that would be something that I was maybe missing from this list of horror comedies. But uh, I didn't hate the movie, but I, I'm not enthusiastic about it. And uh, I have this sinking feeling like that won't be the first time you'll hear me say that on this list. <laughs> um, generally good supporting work. I, I liked uh, Karen Black as the mother. And uh, what was the name of the guy playing the cop now? I'm going to blank on it. Uh, Barry Bostwick? Yeah, Barry Bostwick. Who's, he sort of looks like he would be like this bumbling buffoonish guy. You wonder, like, you know, if he should be retired, if he really does, you know, deserve to be a guy heading a murder investigation. But he proves himself to be fairly savvy and fairly charming. And uh, there's a great scene after he's arrested uh, the Kevin Corrigan character and he's been seeing his mother. He, he has this conversation with her and asks, so... I hope this whole thing with me arresting your son with murder, you know, just something that maybe after some time, maybe you'll be able to get past. And she just looks at him, not likely. <laughs> uh, so there is great moments in the movie. I like the actors in the movie, but it's, yeah, it's, it's like a, a solid C. <laughs> Good enough. Good enough. I think we've summed it up. I died for seven minutes. A bit less. Everybody dies. I was dead. And then when they brought me back, I can... Oh, the dead have a lot of unfinished business, which is why we're still here. No, oh, please. Why are you dressed like that? Were you a maitre d'? You wear what you died in. At least I look nice. Everybody needs something done, and you're the only person who can see or hear us. It's my daughter. She back lives. off, Marjorie. I found him first. <laughs> Is this a bad time? You want your quiet life back, I'll make you a deal. My wife, my widow, she's getting married to a bad, bad guy. Somebody's got to stop this. You do this for me, you'll never see any of us ever again, okay? From DreamWorks Pictures and Spyglass Entertainment. That woman lives in my building. Bertrand Pincus, DDS. Who you are is a little bit of a jerk. Shoes. Your shoes are comfortable. Bye. I knew you were going to come off scary. I'm not scary. This fall, you're going to have to stop and ask yourself the ultimate question. This business of being such a jerk, what is it really getting me? Um. Hi. I'm going to get the next one. Don't be silly. Get in here. How do the ladies resist their rapiers? <laughs> this is how we do it, baby. See life. I suppose you're talking to him right now. Is that what you want me to believe? Wait! 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 In a whole new light. Ooh. The smell, I know. A very sensitive gag reflex. <laughs> Ghost Town. Oh! If I see one more whinging zombie anywhere no, no, near no, me... No, no, we're not zombies. Zombies feed on human flesh. That's offensive. Okay, so Ghost Town sees David Kep, writer-director, trying to center a uh, supernatural romantic comedy around British comedian Ricky Gervais. Gervais is an interesting picture and it uh an interesting guy in that he kind of is polarizing to a lot of people uh you sort of got the british office's sense of humor or you didn't you're sort of off put by the rudeness of ricky gervais's humor or you're not you either find him obtuse or engaging so uh it's kind of a coin toss as far as how it's going to sort of be received i think overall ricky gervais himself comes off quite well in this movie but I do think that Ghost Town is a mix of borrowed elements. 
basically we took the sort of thesis of uh, uh, the B storyline in Ghost, the Patrick Swayze movie, where uh, the Whoopi Goldberg character in that movie is plagued by ghosts who are bothering her to solve their problems. Same thing happens to this dentist character played by, by Gervais. Uh, during a medical procedure, he dies for a short time and he wakes up and he finds that not only can he talk to dead people, but that they're pestering him and they're you know, making this already irritable man even more irritable. Um, Greg Kinnear plays a ghost of a man who'd been cheating on his wife, who uh, is trying to get Gervais to stop a relationship that his wife, her wife is going to get married to another man and he wants to put a stop to it. And it's in one of these interesting movies where there's no real heroes or there's no real villains. Even the bad guys were asked to kind of like a little bit. And uh, much like some guy who kills people, I think at its heart, all the movie wants to do is put a smile on your face. And it's kind of hard to hate it for that. And hate would be a s sort of strange word. But it just uh, it's a movie that unfolds as if it's a movie that I've already seen before. I guess is sort of how I end up feeling about it. I've got a weird sort of feeling of comedic deja vu. It's again fine. I don't. I'm not offended by it. There's nothing that makes me angry about it. I'm not going to go all Moulin Rouge on this shit. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, Ricky Gervais comes off well. But it's kind of a not super memorable movie. And uh, as a fan or a wannabe fan of David Kep, which is a, a difficult field to be in in the age of Mordecai, he apparently directed this movie, Road Mordecai. I haven't seen it, but it's one of the worst reviewed movies in, in, in years. <laughs> I thought, I know that this isn't the movie we're talking about. I thought Mordecai was fine. Okay. Uh, like, like, it wasn't offensively bad. I think people just are like, that's the one that we can get angry about this time around and whatever. Well, uh, I think, again, I won't speak for Mordecai, but it's another case, like, like with what people said of Mordecai. Considering the talented involved, I think this should have been like an easy home run. And it's not exactly a home run. It's, once again, completely fine. That's, that's kind of where I land. Tia Leone is fine in it, right? Greg Kinnear, totally fine. <laughs> um, again, Ricky Gervais does a good job of na navigating a character who could be and maybe should be unlikable, but giving us enough reason to cheer for him anyway. Uh, everybody does fine, but nothing is super exciting about Ghost Town. That's just me, though. Where does Eric land? I... I actually really liked Ghost Town. So here's the thing. I really like Ricky Gervais. Uh, I, um, I, he's never offended me. Maybe it's because I'm a straight white male <laughs> in the middle class, but I've never, uh, I have never really got the outrage for Ricky Gervais. I think there are comedians that are legitimately trying to get under people's skin. Whereas, as you've said, I think rude is the right word. Right. Um, Ricky Gervais is kind of rude, and it's entertaining. It's kind of like the the friend that is a good friend, but man, he's just kind of a dick. Yeah. Um, I think in this day and age, there's more to get mad about than that. Yeah. I did find this genuinely funny. I'm gonna say this right now. This isn't a horror movie at all. No. Uh, this is this is just a romantic comedy with supernatural elements. Um, I I thought it was fine. I think you're entirely right. This is it's shallow how it's uh, every Sandra Bullock movie before Crash. It's uh, you know it, it's a romantic comedy and it follows those beats and that's definitely my biggest gripe with it. That if you've seen a movie like this, you've also seen this movie. 
Um, I've seen movies said, like this better, I guess, would be what I'd say. I mean, I know it's unpopular, but I think that Ghost was a fine movie for what it was in 1990, right? This was done into a more satiric level in The Frighteners by Peter Jackson, but I think, to my mind, much better. It's just... This is like the the sugariest like Disney Channel Sunday night version of of this kind of story, right? I mm-hmm. never felt worry for anybody, and again, I was never really like to ask to to particularly dislike anybody. The stakes felt kind. Of, the movie is sort of warm and gentle. It's something you can watch with your grandma, you know, and that's fine. The movie world needs movie like this, but uh, uh, it just. I don't know. I, I go back to some of the movies that David Kep wrote and directed before this. Have you ever seen The Trigger Effect? I have not. It's like a Los Angeles, early 90s, and the power goes out one day, and it doesn't come back on. And we see like this neighborhood completely fall to shit, and it's quite, it's quite interesting and quite frightening, right? Stir of Echoes is a Kevin Bacon ghosty movie, uh, an adaptation of Richard Matheson sort of taking a, a, a novel set in the 50s, bringing it to a more modern age, and uh, I think making an effective, scary movie. Um, he spends all of his time writing these blockbusters, like, you know, The War of the Worlds for Spielberg, the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, he adapted the uh, Da Vinci Code movies for Ron Howard. So, like, you get the feeling, like, if he's going to, you know, decide to write and direct something himself, it'll be something he'll be passionate about, something that, you know, he'd be really interested in. And for me, this just sort of seemed like an odd, strangely easy choice. It seemed like kind of a safe, you know, yeah, this is a nice crowd-pleasing movie. We can put a, a comedian in the center of it who's popular. Uh, you know, Tia Leone was a thing at this time. And again, I think she's fine and charming in the movie. I do like her well enough. But um, I was never really worried about how things were going to play out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't either. And I think you have a point. Even among this safe premise, this movie is safe. Yeah. Um, uh, that being said, maybe this is uh, this is not what makes a good movie. But this had enough production value to it that I was able to go along with the moments. And I do, again, enjoy Ricky Gervais personally uh enough as uh like actual ricky gervais not the character but actual ricky gervais i enjoy enough as a comedian that when uh it was clear that he was relaxing and letting loose it was enjoyable to watch him i would actually say kind of the harder to watch parts of the movie were when ricky gervais was having to act as a complete dick because regardless of whether you think he's rude or not the man clearly has some amount of charisma yeah um and there, he had to play someone who was a complete uh, social, uh, socially, completely socially inept, I would say, at some points, and it didn't feel natural. Yeah. Maybe I'm just projecting again because I know Ricky Gervais is the person, but it, those were the moments where I, I, it felt like a lot of unforced errors of like, oh, that was very weird for you to say that. Well, I also like the choice of him being a dentist, being kind of smart, because uh, he can talk at people, but take away their power to talk back to him, which is... Yeah, and, get which the, he does. Yeah, and you get the feeling like he that's the way he would prefer everything was. Like, everybody would need some sort of permission by him to speak. There would be a better world as far as he's concerned. And, of mm-hmm. course, the journey the character takes and, you know, being exposed to the world of the supernatural and being able to help people and valuing people yeah great he becomes a better person and aw shucks isn't that awesome and isn't that exactly what we expected from this movie 
And again, the, I always might go on and on about this on the podcast. What were you trying to be and were you successful at being it? I think this wanted to be a harmless, warm-hearted, romantic comedy. And you know what? It's absolutely successful in that. But I guess with Ricky Gervais and David Kep, I was expecting this movie to maybe have a little bit of teeth to it. Or maybe to have something to say. And in the end, it's just kind of an aw-shucks, you know, warm comedy. Which is great. I mean, the world needs those. I guess... I shouldn't grade the movie on my expectations, but I kind of feel, again, lukewarm on it. I will say there was one element beyond the ghosts where I think they could have taken things darker and actually explored something for whatever uh, creative satisfaction they would find through that. This movie almost starts diving into the topic of infidelity in an interesting way, and it stops short of actually saying anything. Um... But if I had to make one correction, if I, if I so if I only got one correction to make of the movie, that would be the angle I'd go. I wouldn't try and break the romantic comedy mold. I wouldn't try and make it any more funny or more scary or anything like that. I would make it into an even deeper dive of why do people cheat and try and come up with an answer outside of, I don't know, I probably shouldn't have. It reminds me a little bit of the Dexter TV show, which was like, okay, we're going to get into the mind of the serial killer. Right. But at some point, they just start describing it as, it's his dark passenger. He just has to live with the fact that he kills. And it loses all steam and insight. And yeah. this movie does the exact same thing with infidelity, which is, it's a dark topic. It's a heavy topic. And I think that there's interesting stuff to be said about it. This movie didn't say it. Well, again, uh, avenues of trust. How are you going to get T. Leon to believe this unbelievable thing? Especially, again, the ghost kind of sabotages him, makes him look like a liar. But um, <laughs> there's interesting questions that could be asked. Or if you went in, a, and again, this is, again, Larry asking to make a different movie. But if it was a closer to a, a darker John Malkovich feel, and that this character was genuinely flawed, and that being opened up to all of these ghosts exacerbated his flaws like first he didn't want to deal with living people now he has to deal with living people and dead people at the end of the movie spoilers he gets hit by a bus and he has another out-of-body experience but what if you know the the journey would have been him learning that lesson only to get hit by that bus and become a ghost who can talk to people but not be heard right then we come sort of full circle and it becomes this cautionary fable sort of thing it gives it some sort of depth um but then people would be bummed out by the ending because Ricky Gervais got hit by a bus. And again, I guess I shouldn't be asking it to be a movie that's different than it is, but I just expected more of it. And that's one of these things. I, I, I maybe brought too much baggage to it, my personal self. <laughs> I do wonder if we could go back in time and uh, explain to the creators, like, hey, this isn't going to rock the world in terms of any kind of box office anything. You're not going to make your money back. It's It's too safe as it is um not in like a hey what would you do to make that box office but just saying hey the gloves are off you guys are risking nothing go for it yeah if the creative team if the director and the writer would do something different if there was maybe at some point uh, it's easy to blame studios for everything wrong with movies but you know i could imagine if we went back in time and said hey sorry to cut it to you the movie's not going to do well as is. Don't try and correct that. Is there any more your movie that you could turn this into? I mean, I, 
wonder if they would have a response to that. There was this great debate about uh, um, the movie Groundhog's Day. Apparently it broke up the friendship between Harold Ramis and, and Bill Murray. Bill Murray wanted the movie to be dark and Harold Ramis wanted it to be a warm fantasy. Harold Ramis won the argument and Groundhog's Day is a classic because of it. Now, if I thought that this concept of a guy who was talking to ghosts was as groundbreaking or as new feeling as Groundhog's Day setup felt, at least at the time, then maybe I would say, yeah, they could do both. In this case, we've seen Heart and Souls, you know, we've seen uh, all the other movies about, you know, I, I see dead people. Um, yeah. Uh, bring something new or, you know, justify your existence in some way. I think it justifies ex its existence by being made of borrowed parts and not sucking. That in itself is an achievement. But and like I enough? said, I appreciate it as a platform for Ricky Gervais. And if, again, if you're a Ricky Gervais fan, by all means, you're, you've, you, this movie has already met you halfway. Uh, will it win new people over? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. But for the second review in the world. In the world? For the second review in a row. I haven't been drinking, I swear. For the <laughs> second review in the world in a row. Ugh. I, I just, uh, I don't, uh, meh. It's all right. It's fine. Eh. Prepare yourselves for the motion picture experience of the century. Two righteous dudes on an epic quest to become the greatest rock and roll band of all time. But first they must find the peak of destiny! These pigs are taking we're never gonna find this thing. Follow me. We are the shadows. From New Line Cinema comes the most important film. Sasquatch! In the history of films. We are Tenacious D. The greatest band on earth. <laughs> <laughs> And Kyle Gass. So Tenacious D, uh, Kyle Gass, Jack Black, uh, this amazing rock band. I remember uh, picking up the CD uh, at the record store when they still existed and um, finding these song tribute to be particularly catchy, but the whole album to be largely hilarious. There was an HBO se short series that they'd been a, a part of, and they'd released a series of really crazy, vile, and hilarious short films online. So if you were into the D, there were things to be found and things to follow. And uh, after about 10 years or so of this sort of indie background existence, they finally exploded onto the big screen with Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny. And it's an interesting journey I had with the movie, because I have to say, the first time I saw it, I was incredibly disappointed by it. I, I, honestly, I remember not laughing very much at all and feeling this is a bunch of recycled stuff. I've seen a lot of these concepts before in their earlier sketch material done better. I've seen them do harder humor than this. I've seen them do softer humor than this. It just like... It didn't really feel like it picked an alley and it didn't really feel like it told a story and I had to say I was super disappointed. 
and uh, I didn't watch it again until it came time to do this podcast. Upon revisiting it for the second time, I looked at it, I think maybe more as it was intended to be, which is less of a movie and more of like a like a pothead movie, like a Cheech and Chong type of adventure. Like it's Pineapple Express. It's a movie that's more about moment to moment. It's this the essential argument of it's about the journey, not the destination. Because as a movie, I don't think that it's great. But I do think that there's a hilarious stuff in the movie. And I do think on the second viewing, I guess being more receptive to it, there was enough of them to justify its existence. As a long-term Tenacious D fan, I guess I will say the movie's not what I wanted to, it to be, but I no longer think it sucks. I think it might be this weird thing that I find true about a lot of sketch comedy in particular. Very true of Kids in the Hall, very true of Monty Python. It's mood-specific. If it hits me on the right day, I find the Monty Python TV show to be hilarious. On the wrong day, it does nothing for me. Same thing with Kids in the Hall. And as I have learned, I guess the same thing with Tenacious D. This time around, it caught me on the right day, and I laughed enough to give it a shrugging conditional, yeah, whatever, serve with your favorite beverage, go ahead. Yeah, fine, Tenacious (laughs) D. It's dumb, but its heart's in the right place. Fine, we'll give it a thumbs up. But that's about as enthusiastic as I can get. Are you saying that this movie went from a, I didn't like it, to you brought it up to the levels of some guy who kills people and goes down where it's another meh? (laughs) Well, but the thing is, I laughed out loud more in this Tenacious D movie than I did in the previous two entries. But as a movie, it's less of a movie than either of the previous entries, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah, you're... I think you're spot on where there's a very, very loose narrative. And, like, there is a plot. There is characters who have a goal that go on a thing to accomplish the goal. Um, But there's also a lot of detours along the way. It almost feels like, actually, I think at one point it is a road trip movie. Yeah. Where there isn't really, uh, there's just events that happen and less... uh, um, of it, it's a and then writing and not and but therefore writing yeah um and also you cut yeah go ahead there's also just the things well we have to do this we have to do the origin of the band and we have to do the part where they split up and then get back together and become a band and we have to do the rock off against the devil like all of that stuff we'd seen before in previous tenacious d incarnations uh it was just bigger and dumber on the big screen i guess <laughs> you want to say you keep saying we. Uh, my exposure to Tenacious D was this movie and the ra- not rock band, Guitar Hero song. Okay. Um, let's actually take a moment and talk about the band itself. Uh, I think that they are more... Uh, I feel like Tenacious D, and again, I know this is part of the, part of the um, tradecraft of them. I think they could go a lot further if they would let loose and actually not have to joke all the way through. Um, like, they even their most about... self-serious song is probably the metal. You know them better than me, so correct me. The joke um, of the I'd... band is that, like, they're these rock gods, or they think of themselves as rock gods. But they're juvenile. Like, uh, mentally, no matter how old they get, they're still, like, these 14-year-old boys, right? Um, so the subject matter is always, you know, about their dicks or about, you know, toilet humor. 
And uh, but the or the, the, or just general ballooning themselves up to be greater than they are. But like, the oh, surprise of them is the level of actual musical talent that they legit possess. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> they back that shit up. They talk like they're the hardest rocking band in the world, and then they rock fucking hard. <laughs> and that's they kind talk of awesome. like they're not serious about talking about being the uh, the rockinest band in the world, and then they rock hard. And I'm saying. Maybe they should have built their platform on just being good at rock first. Right. Like if you take the lyrics, uh, and I don't, I don't know, like, but like, how do you think Jack Black has it in him to make some kind of Coheed and Cambria esque? Every word has a meaning. Every sentence is part of this weaving tapestry. You need to listen to it five times to really get the full story that they're delving deep into, while also doing yes, the what I would say is legitimately great music. Yeah. Um, I. And I don't, I don't want to make it seem like my stance is, oh, this isn't serious enough. This is juvenile, therefore it is poor quality. What I'm saying is maybe they would have more of a leg to stand on if it wasn't always the, um, to some degree, self-deprecating uh, bragging that they do. Right. You know what I mean? Well, the similar thing, interestingly enough, and this is sort of what they followed followed to them, you know, they're spiritual inheritors, I think, as far as the comedy uh, musical duo with legit talent would be Flight of the Concords, right? It's another duo. They had another HBO show, and hopefully someday, cross our fingers, they're going to have a movie. But the joke of them is that supposedly their band is kind of lame and, and, and not popular, but their music is amazing. Their music is dead solid. I would say the same thing about Tenacious D, but they don't have near the rep that Flight of the Concords does, right? I think they which is weird to think about that Jack Black somehow has come playing second fiddle to some guys from New Zealand. But the vibe is kind of weirdly similar in there, the way they present themselves. They they they're always playing these like open mic nights in some obscure location and beach community somewhere, right? And yet they're yeah. playing as if. In the saw in the, in the actual movie when they play that uh, uh, it master exploder song and the dude's head literally explodes when he hears yes. the opening riff, <laughs> but the riff is badass. Yeah. You also believe it. But I think like I like to think that music maybe we come full circle again and we may actually start hearing rock on the radio again once upon a time. Who knows? Um, it, it seems like music is stagnating and we need another Nirvana to show up and shake things up a little bit. Who oh, knows? Tell me about it. Hey, why don't we start a ranking review about music? God, <laughs> God damn. Uh, again, I, there's only so many hours in the day, but uh, <laughs> a ranking re- music? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I again, Mix and match it could be called. There's a lot of uh, interesting celebrity cameos that we can talk about here. You got your uh, Ben Stiller, you got your Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins basically started Jack Black's career. You go back and look at old Tim Robbins movies, and Jack Black always will show up in a small supporting role in there. Bob Roberts, Dead Man Walking, you know. Uh, So (laughs) he called in a favor. (laughs) Tim Tim Robbins. Um, And... uh, John C. Riley as the Sasquatch, which was a, one of those moments where we were talking about where it doesn't really add anything to the film, but it's fun enough. Yeah, Jack Black has a weird obsession with Sasquatch. They did an episode about it on the TV show. They felt obligated to do it. I think it was an excuse to have like that drug trip music video. And mm-hmm. I guess, like again, the isolated music videos work. 
It's it's a movie where all of the isolated scenes work well enough, but they don't really add up into a real movie. It's sort of strange. Like, I like the rock opera opening with Meatloaf and Dio, you know? And I like this sort of getting to know Kyle Gass as a rock god, then finding out that he's a loser, but then making the greatest band ever with him anyway. That little mini-movie by itself is fine. And then the road trip to find the pick of destiny itself is fine. And then the final sort of showdown with Dave Grohl as the devil is, you know, we actually get to hear the song that Tribute was about because that wasn't actually the song. It was just a tribute, right? So all of the pieces are there. They're definitely paying service to the fans that have been there uh, a while. And, you know, it's certainly not complicated enough stuff that you'd have a hard time understanding it if you were a newbie. <clears throat> so all of the pieces are there, and yet it doesn't feel like a complete movie. But... I'm, I've become accepting of it. I've, this, this, look at it as a series of sketches. Look at it as a series of absurd events. Look at it as sketch comedy. And on that level, yeah, I can approach it. As a movie, I think it's kind of a mess. That's fair. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to say about Tenacious D? I feel like I mowed over you, brother. Uh, you want to know what, actually? Let's take this <laughs> moment to talk. We well, uh, talk about Jack Black. Because we talked about Tenacious D as the band. But I think... You, at the beginning, at the opening of the episode, you mentioned about how this kind of was uh, the stock market crashing in terms of Jack Black's bankability. He had just come off of, if I recall correctly, he had done School of Rock, um, a couple of other... I mentioned Shallow Hal earlier. Uh, he um, he did some serious acting. The King Kong movie was before this, if I recall yeah. correctly. Um Jack Black was a pretty bankable name, um, but then this happened, and what's happened with Jack Black since? Yeah, well, I mean, he still does, you know, kid-friendly comedies, which seems to be the safe, bankable thing for him to do. He's in the Goosebumps movies. Exactly. Uh, and the new Jumanji movie and stuff like this, right? Oh, yes! So, um, like... yeah. He's definitely gone the safe route, and you know that he'll he'll do well and continue to make lots of money that way. Um, and I, you know, Tenacious D, where it is, there's a new album cooking. So he hasn't thrown, he hasn't given up on it. In fact, the album that followed the movie is basically them dealing with the fact that the movie was a bomb, and them, you know, trying to convince themselves that maybe it will become a cult classic. You know, a lot of movies that bomb theatrically turned out to be, you know, huge hits. Maybe this is actually the next Wizard of Oz or Casablanca or It's a Wonderful Life. Or, or did you know that Pick of Destiny actually did better than Citizen Kane in the box office? So there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Pick of Destiny is a better movie than Citizen Kane. Um, uh, Canada's about those, to legalize marijuana, so this movie just became a lot better to a lot of people, I think, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so what we're saying is, it's grab your dumb, friends and on I'm October saying. 18th, watch Pick of Destiny. Exactly. I'm sure it will be better for it. Like, again, it's kind of a stoner comedy, and taken as a stoner comedy, it's fine. Coming soon. Randy Quaid, Mary Beth Hurt, Sandy Dennis, and director Bob Balaban bring you a fresh look at family life. Hi. The Lemley family is moving up in the world. Rise and shine! But something is eating at young Michael Lemley. You're not scared of your room, are you? Michael, the cellar's dark. Everything's dark at night. His parents think Michael's problem is in his head. But Michael knows it's on his plate. What are we? Leftovers, honey. 
So Parents is a 1989 comedy written by Christopher Hawthorne and directed by Bob Balaban. Um, it's starring Randy Quaid before he'd completely lost his marbles, Mary Beth Hurth, and uh, Sandy Dennis. It's set in the 50s, and it deals with the troubling relationship that uh, can sort of exist in the shadows of the father and son dynamic, in that on some level the father is kind of mystified by the son you're half me and yet you're nothing like me and the son has this sort of same mirror expression, like you made me and yet I don't understand you <laughs> um, it's amped in this movie as this boy slowly comes to discover that his parents are these murderous cannibals but it plays on a universal fear of you know the lack of understanding, that great divide of childhood and adulthood. Um, it's, I think, a fairly large-minded movie. I think that Bob Balaban brings this really interesting sort of cinematic approach. It feels weirdly Cohen-esque at times, but I guess at the risk of repeating myself yet again, the movie in the end is neither that funny nor that scary. It's interesting, it's kind of a strangely hypnotizing 81 minutes, and it lives in this weird la-la land of being set in the 50s but made in the 80s, so it kind of belongs everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> it is a film for all time periods. Uh, exactly. Um, it was a big swing with interesting imagery and interesting performances, and again, I, I don't regret the time I spent with it, but... Would I recommend Parents to somebody? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe like my really nerdy film people who would like uh, really want to peel the onion. But uh, it's out there and strange. I can respect it for that. But uh, it also kind of feels like it's holding me a little bit at arm's length. Um, so a, a, a murky response to Parents. But I would love to hear what you have to say. A murky response from you. My response is crystal clear. I fucking hated this movie. <laughs> um, I think that it missed almost everything it swung at. The setup for all of... Ooh, I feel it. Eric's coming back. Here it comes. <laughs> no, the setup for all this stuff is interesting enough, but the execution through and through falters. I think there's one interesting scene in this whole movie, and that's when the kid walks in on his parents, not fully having sex, because this is not a porn, but they're getting ready. Yeah. Uh, and to him, it looks violent, because he doesn't understand what he's seeing. And that's the one moment where I think they properly executed on a concept everything outside of that entirely failed for me um the relationship between the son and his parents makes no sense to me i think it would have made a lot more uh it, it would have rang a lot more true if uh ashley had actually suggested this if he was a nephew that they had to adopt for right. some reason because he treats them like they're complete strangers and they treat him like 
Like, they forget that they have a kid every time he leaves the door. Like, he'll come in and be like, hey, mom and dad. They'll be like, oh, fuck, how'd that kid get here? You <laughs> they're again. so enamored with each other and their cannibalism that they're distracted. And it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel natural at all. Well, that's the sort of strange, surreal vibe throughout the movie. Like, isolated scenes. The scene that always sticks with me is the scene where he's playing in the the cupboard in the kitchen and sort of spying on his mom while she's prepping supper and all of a sudden the meat all the sausage at the top of the hamper comes down and starts wrapping around him and coiling him and there's this strange weird maybe phallic imagery while he's spying on his mom and you're like what the fuck is that scene about and the problem is is that the movie doesn't really have a lot of answers for you (laughs) it just sort of leaves you to 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 deal with it uh the dreams he has where he runs towards his bed and he jumps into the bed and all of a sudden the bed is just a pool of blood that he sinks into the image is strong but we don't really know where it's coming from but there's just strange isolated moments i love how gross and rare all the meat is in this movie (laughs) i love the scene where she meets with the guidance counselor to talk about her kid and the guidance counselor turns out to be just as fucking crazy as anybody else in the movie (laughs) uh like it there is a world being presented here but i didn't really understand the boundaries of it so uh in one way it was kind of fun to not know what was happening next but in another way, it kind of made the movie kind of formless, right? Neither scary nor funny. It's just this weird series of events. I would say this about the movie. I think the, the general uh, movie-making wisdom is you want to show, don't tell. I feel like this movie was constantly telling through showing. Not in a good way, but in that like, even though there wasn't verbal explanations of everything, there was still no subtlety. No. Uh, you mentioned him jumping into his bed. Great visual. You're entirely right. Maybe have uh, everyone like gets ready for bed. And they're like, okay, it's time for bed. And he just looks at his bed and he doesn't go to it. And there's a beat. There's a moment where like, why is he so scared of his bed? And he grabs it and it's like, oh, I'm just kid. I'm getting tired watching you jump into your bed. And then he goes into his bed and then he leans into it. And, but he's staring awake and you're like, what's up kid? Just go to sleep. And then he drifts off to sleep. And as soon as he's asleep, splash blood. And you understand he's scared of these nightmares, stuff like that. Uh, the meat, uh, was, it was also interesting. Um, I do think kind of like, uh, some guy who kills people there. I think this movie was trying to, uh, um, deflect a little bit and kind of be like, Oh, maybe the kid is just crazy and he's imagining all of it. And I think that's a fully acceptable angle to take. And I'm saying presenting that is a fully acceptable angle to take, but I still feel like by the end of it, I'd kind of called the movie's bluff and be like, no, there's something actually up with these parents. Otherwise they're just acting weird beyond, beyond even a movie trying to explain that the perception of a child and an adult can be different. And like I said, the one thing that kind of cut through that to me was the the parents uh, being all uh, ravenous with each other and the kid misinterpreting that. Yeah. Um, but outside of that scene, I wasn't pulled into this world at all. I wasn't pulled into any of the relationships at all. I didn't really... Actually, I'll take that back. I was going to say I didn't really care about any of the characters. I did think it was interesting at the end when the kid was kind of like, ah, cannibalism isn't cool, no dice. And the dad was like, I guess we'll just have to kill him. And the mom was like, nah, man, that's my kid. I think that was interesting. But again, if you had pulled that through the story a little bit more, uh, make that the central conflict of 
have me wonder whether uh, again like i'm making my own movie guys you did with ghost town as we kind of do but i think i would be more engaged if uh the mom having to choose between the dad and the son was a more prevalent theme throughout the movie instead she constantly looks like she wants to jump the dad's bone at all times just as distracted as he is with her and it, it feels weird and not weird in a ooh this movie's surreal and it's really uh Artistic. it's really cerebral it just feels weird as in someone got this slightly off and it doesn't taste quite right right uh it's also interesting to me and i connected it as this maybe being smart accidentally or not but uh they seem to be really good at putting on a public face when they're around other people, when they invite people over for dinner. Their craziness is not there, but they don't bother wearing that mask to their kid. So the kid sort of sees the real parents that the rest of the world doesn't. And I think that there's an element of truth that, again, could have been exploited in a, in a sharper satire. Um, I feel like... And, and again, this is... A movie's a movie, you get to make your own rules. I feel like a kid that grew up with parents like that would just accept it, though. Yeah. Uh, I don't know necessarily... Because, again, unless they've just been negligent like this the whole time they've had this child, uh, it, it doesn't feel like the kid would be like, wow, mom and dad act weird. He would just grow up with it, and that's what, that would be how it is. Which is why I like Ashley's fix of have him be a nephew brought in. Right. Yeah, that would solve a lot of the problems, too. He had to adjust to their world. He had no choice. He was thrown into it at the last minute. Uh, I, I guess I, I appreciate that it had this artistic pretense, and I appreciate that it was 81 minutes long. I do think, like, I was surprised at how short it was when it was over. I was like, okay, well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And I looked at the back, well, 81 minutes. Well, it felt longer than 81 minutes. So I'm glad that it wasn't 100 or 120. Yes. Um, again, it's another one of these movies where while I'm watching it, I'm thinking of all the interesting directions it could be going in, but isn't. <laughs> Which is not, I guess, particularly high praise. Um, I wouldn't give up on Bob Balaban as a director. I actually should look him up and see if he did anything else more. I know he's much more known as being this comedic actor. Um, if you like the Christopher Guest movies, he's in a lot of those. And uh, like I say, that Wes Anderson movie, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, I like the man himself. I find the man interesting. I'd love to hear his thoughts on this movie all these years later. And of course, the interesting wild card of, of Randy Quaid. I, I do think that there was a reason that Randy Quaid was a successful actor. I mean, he was nominated for an act, uh, an Oscar very young in his career, and as a result, he never had a problem getting work. But he seems to be another one of these Hollywood victims who was just too famous for too long, and it, it, it wore away at his sense of reality. But uh, once upon a time, Randy Quaid was the real deal, and uh, I, I didn't think he sucked in this movie, so... It's just hard not to picture him as that Klondike beard-wearing, raving lunatic that he grew into. Yes! Anyway, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about parents, or are we short and sweet on this one? I, I felt like I had a, a big enough rant. Uh, there's like I could go into why every scene didn't work for me, but I feel like I said my piece. Okay. Uh, it's, it's an interesting swing. Again, I don't think it's completely successful either. I definitely understand where you're coming from 
I like movies that are ambitious, especially comedies that, that are ambitious. I will respect a failed comedy like like Parents or Death to Smoochie, but more than I will respect like a failed slasher movie. It's just, you you were trying something there. Whether or not you were successful, alas, but I like where your head was at anyway. All Tom Hanks wanted was a quiet vacation at home. This is what I need, Carol. I, I need this. Welcome to Mayfield Place. A typical street in the burbs. Morning, Walter! Where nothing much ever happened. Walter's dog just took a dump on Rumsfield's lawn again. Until the Klopex moved in. Klopex? Klopex. Klopex. No one goes in, no one comes out. Neighbors from hell. It was a nice place to live. He said he thinks the Klopex are evil incarnate. Well, you're much too smart to fall for that, aren't you, honey? But now... Carol! You wouldn't want to visit there. Ray, this is Walter. No! The Burbs. I'm going over the fence, and I'm not coming back till I find a dead body. Ray, do you want him to take your family, kidnap them, tear their livers out, and make some kind of satanic pate? We found Walter! We got a real problem. I hit the gaslight, I'd run! God, I love this street. Tom Hanks. I think we are overreacting. No. The Burbs. It's one hell of a neighborhood. Hey, honey. I think we should move. Um, so Joe Dante, a director I've always liked. I mean, he brought me Gremlins when I was at right, the right age bracket. He did this movie called Inner Space when I was around the right age bracket where uh, Dennis Quaid got shrunk into a machine and then injected into Martin Short. Um, he did this movie called The Explorers. Um, he's, you know, he's worked almost exclusively in genre cinema his entire life, The Howling, you know. Um, so he's one of the boys, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the Burbs is a special place in my heart, too, because it's one of the first times I remember going to a movies on a date, sort of, kind of. In the innocent sort of holding hands, I have a girlfriend, but I'm in grade eight type of date, <laughs> right? That's adorable. But exactly. So I have precious sort of attachments to the movie. So right away, I'm going to come at The Burbs as a fan. I like The Burbs. I think it's a charming movie. Revisiting it all these years later, not only was I hit by a pang of nostalgia just from thinking of those awkward, cute sort of first kitty dates, but... I was unprepared to see Carrie Fisher. <laughs> huh. I, uh, I, I, I love Carrie Fisher. I always loved Carrie Fisher. Obviously, she weighed heavily in my childhood for her participation in Star Wars. But I also think that she was a really, you know, funny writer and, you know, comedic talent. And it, it sucks that she's no longer with us. And uh, I'd almost forgotten. I always sort of thought of The Burbs as that Tom Hanks comedy. But Carrie Fisher plays Tom Hanks' wife. And she's actually very funny in the movie. The whole cast is uniformly strong. I love me Bruce Dern as the military-obsessed neighbor. I even like Corey Feldman as the teenager or the young you know, college-age kid who's renting mm -hmm. a house in the neighborhood but finds his neighbors more entertaining than his television. And uh, I, I think it does a really good job of sort of presenting this warm community and then showing you the ugly underbelly of the community when the Klopex move into town and they are sort of greeted with a lot of contempt and suspicion. And the movie gives us a lot of reasons to not like the Klopex or to think that they're, they're sinister. 
Um, but what we're seeing, or at least what it seems like we're seeing through most of the movie, is uh, these the neighborhood goes to war on the newbies, on the outsiders. And I think that there's some fun satirical teeth to that. But then everything changes at the ending, in the third act of the show. So I guess that's where I'll pass the ball to you. Do you think that The Burb still works as a successful comedy? Or do you think that the uh, shocking explosive finale of the movie might be sort of took the teeth out of the satire? For all of these movies that are quote-unquote comedy horrors, this one was definitely a comedy. I feel like it might also be the most horror. Uh, I really enjoyed The Burbs quite a bit. Uh, this is actually my first viewing. Uh, it, it kind of struck right before my time. Um, and I will say, although the movie was released in 1989, this is a 90s movie through and through. Right. It's right up there with, like, um, I don't know, uh, Angels in the Outfield or... Some other, hey, this is what it's like living in the 90s type. Uh, not period pieces at the time. Obviously, these movies didn't think of themselves as of an era. But now looking back at them, they clearly are. They clearly represent the time, I think, very uh, well in terms of, hey, this is, how, this is how we felt about ourselves in this time. You know what the, I mean? The safety. It's not of... like, this. watching this isn't going to make you go, ah, I know how people lived in 1989. It'll go, ah, I know how people saw themselves in 1989. Yeah. The, the safety of suburbia and uh, the double-edged sword of suburbia. And I think that, that that's, I still love the movie, but I think that's the maybe missed, maybe missed opportunity of it. If the Klopex weren't spoilers, legit serial killers, if the neighborhood had just created this paranoia around them and by these misunderstandings and these coincidences, uh, you know, basically found them guilty. Uh, there's an amazing speech. I think it's actually well rendered but by Tom Hanks, like uh, towards the end of the movie. He's blown up. He's, he's caused an electrical outage. He's blown up this guy's house. And uh, he sort of realizes that this has just gone out of hand and he lets it all out in this incredible speech and then throws the gurney in the back of the uh, ambulance and demands to be taken to the, to the hospital as he has just been exploded. But really, if he had been taken to the hospital and the credits had rolled, the, the movie would have had its satirical edge. Like it would have been like, it would have been a commentary on suburbia. Instead, all of a sudden, the Klopex turn super evil. There's a big climactic fight, another explosion, and uh, yeah, they're all hauled off to jail. And this position is vindicated. Even the the uh, neighbor who's sort of been the real the guy who was throwing all the fuel on the fire. I can't remember the, the Art, instigator. Art. He's the instigator. Artie's the name of the character. I can't remember the name of the actor. He's one of the few actors in this movie who didn't go on to do bigger, better things. Um, he says, he says to the uh, news people who are there interviewing him after everything's going on that if you move into suburbia, just know that we're watching. We're watching. And it kind of vindicates this sort of position of fear thy neighbor. And that's unfortunate because the movie kind of started in this love thy neighbor place. Like, it reminded me of growing up in a small town in Alberta. And that itself was a double-edged sword. But, like, we knew by first name the people that lived to the left and right of us. And the people who lived across the street from us. And, like, we liked each other. We got along. And uh, 
that's a, a becoming a rarer and rarer thing. And uh, again, I think that the movie would have had a real point to make had it sort of pointed at suburbia saying, look how it treats outsiders, instead of turned into this sort of goofy over-the-top spectacle. But I'm at war at it because I also kind of love the goofy over-the-top spectacle too. So not every movie has to be super dark and super harsh. And again, this movie, much like Ghost Town, much like Some Guy Who Kills People, just really wants to put a smile on your face. So uh, is it fair to criticize the movie for the movie maybe it could have been? I don't know. I mean, if we're not criticizing it against the movie, it could have been, what are we criticizing? I suppose. Um, Again, I like the movie that we have. I like the sense of humor in the movie. I love the performances throughout the movie. Uh, it's interesting, Bruce Dern, the guy I was telling about, uh, he's got this young trophy wife, and uh, he, he looks I like... was really, I was really waiting for the trophy wife uh, to jump on Corey Feldman. No, never happened. But that's the thing. We Usually we would not like that guy. And Bruce Dern is, you know, if you want someone to play a slimy villain, Bruce Dern is so good at that. But I really like seeing him as this guy who genuinely contributes to the adventure and is kind of lovable in his oafish way. Uh, great sequences like uh, when Art and this guy go over to, to get Tom Hanks' character to unleash the next step in their scheme. But Carrie Fisher scolds them and sends them away. And they act like these two little kids being admonished. Oh, please, Mrs. So-and-so, can't, can't he come out and play? <laughs> Artie literally starts kicking dust with his sneakers, like the shamed little boy. And it's a, just a really warm and hilarious scene. And, and the movie's full of those. And for that reason, it's impossible to hate the movie. Like, I like the movie. <laughs> but again, if you take away that last five minutes, it's also a smart movie. With that last five minutes, it's kind of just a silly movie. Now, that's interesting because I actually kind of... Now, I'm not going to say I come at it from the other direction. I felt like the last five minutes, it almost feels separate from the rest of the movie in a good way. In a, they're like, ah, oh, it's a movie, what you going to do? Of course, they were actually bad guys. I feel like the speech that Tom Hanks gave had as much impact as it had. They might have been right at the end of the day, but they were right for all the, the wrong, wrong reasons. Yeah. And I, I, I still, like, the message still came through to me in that moment. It's still, like, you saying like, oh, we're the bad guys. We're the crazy ones. We're the ones that are crazy. And they were. And, and he was. Uh, the fact that they turned out to be evil at the very end didn't really undercut that for me. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't justify all the stuff that they've done. No. It didn't justify how they acted. It didn't justify the things that they added onto their conspiracy that actually were not part of it. These there's a neighbor during partway of the movie that goes missing and they're like, Oh shit, these new creepy neighbors must have killed him. Yeah. They didn't, they had helped him. They had legitimately helped him yeah. for re regardless of what other evil they might have done in their own time. They were legitimately collecting his mail and uh, slipping his toupee back in amongst his belongings. Yes. Um, and, uh, and taking care of other stuff while this guy who turned out had cancer had to go away to the hospital. They were wrong about that. They misjudged. It's a little goofy thing that the, the Klopex were actually, uh, you know, Frankenstein-esque, uh, or I guess maybe more Adam's family type. I don't know what you want to call them. They were horror family cliche. But the messaging of the movie, I think, doesn't necessarily, at least for me, get lost in that uh, little stinger. Right. And again, the movie just wants to be fun and light and, and goofy, and it, for the most part, is that. So, again, I'm just... 
it's something that occurred to me on upon revisiting it that might have again just might have been a missed opportunity um for the rest Possibly, and that's and that's i guess what i'm saying is that if i watched a cut of this that just had the Klopex moving away, uh, feeling bad, and Tom Hanks being like, okay, I guess we're going to the lake now, finally, sorry. Um, it would have felt like a very, like, almost the same movie to me. Right. So Which that... maybe maybe that's just lending credence to your point that you could have just run with this thing that you had done so well throughout the rest of the movie of being a satirical comedy about suburbia and not had to worry about... Uh, entirely exonerating your protagonists throughout. Uh, but then at the same time, I could be sitting here thinking if they made that movie, I'd say, oh, they overthought it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a cost. You, the grass is always greener on the other side. I don't really have any serious problems with the burbs as it exists. I think I mentioned at the beginning of the, the, the podcast, this kind of is the end of the era of Tom Hanks as like the comedic leading man he'll still do comedies now and then i can't remember this was right around the time of joe versus the volcano but when <laughs> when big came out and bonfire of the vanities was that big broad comedy that kind of failed for him he sort of then became you know philadelphia forrest gump serious actor tom hanks and i do think that he's a great actor things like castaway he's genuinely blown me away but Green Mile. We'd Green Mile's just great the Stephen movie. King episode. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes I miss the old school goofy Tom Hanks. I do think he handles this material really well. And it's deceptively difficult because that character could be seen as kind of a, a shitheel. In a way, my narrative of it ending with him being hauled off to, to the hospital and then likely prison could have worked uh, if... Uh, if not for the fact that Tom Hanks makes him so likable, that ending would just not sit with anybody. Well, he wouldn't wouldn't feel like he'd earned it. He's not such a bad guy. He was just misled. It was a misunderstanding, you know. Um, he's really genuinely good at, at playing that and at selling really difficult constructs. I think that he elevates fantasy premises like Big and Splash because he can sell you that that. That he can sell you pretty much anything because he's Tom yeah. Hanks. So Tom um, Hanks, the actor's actor. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of it, the last really of the great tentpole uh, comedies. I think maybe Big was before this. I can't remember now, but it's right in that. I want to say that Big was after it. I mean, it's w- watch in this. this if you talk for one more minute, I'll have the answer. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, also, Joe Dante is not, he's still with us. There's rumblings of a Gremlins 3, and he did a few years ago a family horror movie called The Hole, which if you want, you can actually watch in 3D, which is, you know, a, a family-friendly sort of jump scare type of uh, genre thing. But uh, classic Joe Dante, like The Gremlins, like Inner Space, even The Howling. It's a goofy movie, but I kind of love it because of the werewolf stuff in it. Um I'm always up for another Joe Dante movie, and this is another one of those high water marks for him. I think Big came out one year before The Burbs, 1988. Yep, there you go. Which is weird because the the character of like Big Tom Hanks was supposed to be an adult, and I get that part of it was him playing at the mindset of a preteen. Um, but I I got the feeling that even adult Big Tom Hanks was a much was cast as a much younger character than suburban dad Tom Hanks from the Burbs. Right. 
Right. And both read in, both read equally uh, genuine to me. So again, congratulations to Tom Hanks for being the actor. Yeah, you can sell anything to anybody. Uh, check out the Burbs; it's really worth your time. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Sky means business. Ah! Young Frankenstein. Oh dear, nothing left. What shall we throw in now? Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo! Peter Boyle as the monster. Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Loris Leachman as Frau Blucher. You played that music in the middle of the night. Yes. To get us into the laboratory. Yes. And it was you who left my grandfather's book out for me to find. Yes. So that I would. Yes. Then you and Victor were. Say it. He was my boyfriend. Carrie Gar as Inga. Would you like to have a roll in the hay? Roll, roll, roll in the hay. Kenneth Mars as the inspector. So I think as I spilled in the introduction, I. Uh... I've watched Young Frankenstein as long as I've been alive. The movie came out in 74. I came out in 76. Um, but it was always this regular thing that people came over to visit or we had friends over for the weekend and we would often throw in our VHS tape of Young Frankenstein. And I've always thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious before I understood that it was lampooning older Hollywood movies. I just have always loved, loved, loved this movie. Um, it's just a matter of fate that it happens to be a great movie on top of that. <laughs> because I think that just because of the role it played in my childhood, I would have been giving an enthusiastic foaming at the mouth review. This is another one of these things like uh, when I reviewed the South Park movie where I feel like I don't need to so much review the movie as I could just sit here and recite it for you <laughs> if you wanted, right? I found it incredibly quotable. I think in a memorable career, Gene Wilder is always remembered as Willy Wonka, but I think he is fucking genius in this movie. I think he is so funny as young Frankenstein. Um, I think the funniest part of Gene Wilder in this movie is the face he's making on the cover of the theatrical poster. It's his ability to play madness is what it is, which is the mm -hmm. same thing that people love about the Willy Wonka performance. But I think the madness is more appropriate here because he plays this character that's been suppressing this part of his life. His great grandfather was the Frankenstein <laughs> and uh, 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 he, you know, is pulled back into it after, you know convoluted story he gets sucked back he in. was two weeks away from retirement but god damn it yeah. you're the only one that can do it Johnson he goes to his grandfather's mansion in Transylvania and uh, 
or wherever it was, and uh, finds the secret library to, that has all of these medical books that gives him the key to resurrection. He digs, Turns out you just have to do it on a very giant fella. Yeah. He digs up Peter Boyle, yeah, or builds Peter Boyle. Uh, no, he just digs up Peter Boyle and his assistant Igor played memorably and for eternity by hilariously by Marty Feldman. They accidentally put an abnormal brain inside of him and have to deal with the consequences. The whole movie is shot in glorious black and white. You've got brilliant supporting work from Cloris Leachwin, Madeline Kahn, and um, Terry Garr. Uh, the jokes, I guess you could say, range from lame funny, bad funny... Too obvious funny, but never not funny, as far as I'm concerned. So that, that, I think that's a good way of just describing Mel Brooks's humor in general. Yeah, but I mean, I think there are times where he's a little overused into one level or the other. The balance here works for me. So I think it's a funny movie, whether or not you recognize it as it sort of lampooning previous Hollywood. And I think it's a funny movie just on the basic of its core script and the actors and execution. So, yeah. Young Frankenstein is the best of the six movies that we've talked about, so <laughs> that's where I open on Young Frankenstein. It's going to be really weird yeah, doing the uh, lists, because clearly Young Frankenstein takes the first and second spot of yours. <laughs> um, I want to say, you ended this on talking about how funny it is. I had not seen Young Frankenstein. I know as a cinephile, that's a that's a sin, and I'll go do ten hail uh, Spielbergs <laughs> after this to compensate. Um, I actually found this to maybe be the least comedic of Mel Brooks's films, and not to say that it's the least funny, but just that it didn't have that jokes per minute that Brooks usually delivers, much to the benefit of the film. I think if this film wasn't as self-serious as it does get at some points some of it wouldn't work nearly as well for example um there's the moment where the frankenstein monster mr boyle uh he's frankensteining around and there's a little girl picking flowers and part of me was legitimately like oh shit he's about to throw that girl like i forgot (laughs) i was watching a mel brooks movie and it had entirely crossed my mind i was horrified for that girl i legitimately thought she was in danger and then he like looks at the camera and he's like oh oh and i was like oh you got me phil you got me did you catch the celebrity cameo in the blind man no i did not there's a scene where frankenstein's monster comes into the home of this lonesome blind man who tries to offer him food and comfort but keeps on inadvertently hurting him underneath all of that beard is gene hackman believe it or not (sighs) Uh, and again, just a nice little touch in the movie. Um, going back to Gene Wilder and his central performance as this guy who's like suppressing the evil, suppressing the crazy, suppressing it, and having his entire environment pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. There's a scene that I think only Gene Wilder could have pulled off where he's having a nightmare and a conversation with himself as he sleeps in bed. And he's tossing back and forth, screaming, I'm not Frankenstein! And, (laughs) like, on the page, it's one of those things that it's only funny because of its execution, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, did they know they were going to get an actor to pull that off? Did they add it afterwards because of the actor they had? Like, what? 
this is the kind of thing where I say that is what the directing is. Yeah. Where however that came to be, you can thank the director. Or if the gag's not funny, then what's funny is people's reaction to the gag. Cloris Leachman says, stay close to the candles. The staircase, it can be treacherous, but none of the candles are lit. So Frankenstein just kind of looks over his shoulder and, okay, we'll stay close to your candles, right? Uh, The whole secret, uh, secret entranceway with the bookcase. Put the candles back. (laughs) <laughs> classic again that's a scene that would have been funny in a door stout slamming farce throughout the ages and would still be funny today it's vintage classic physical comedy executed perfectly by a game cast and a game director let's also i mean you you touched on it I think one of the greatest successes of this movie is the homage factor because I think you could put this movie in a lot of ways in the 19, I don't know, 30s, 40s, during the early age of film, um, and it would it would read just as well. Yeah. Um, the actually, they use a lot of the traditional props and a lot of the traditional methods. It's beyond just being black and white. It's handled like uh, 40s or, uh, yeah, I'd say like a 40s film. No, they had some authentic props and set pieces from the original Frankenstein movie. They were taking it very, very seriously in the point of like a painstaking, deliberate montage to how the movie would have been shot on the day. It's almost the way Quentin Tarantino will lovingly sort of pay it, uh, homage to some obscure samurai movie in, in, in Kill Bill. Uh, Mel Brooks is doing that in this dumb comedy. But I also feel, and this is a controversial statement, that Young Frankenstein's comedy just generally ages better than a lot of his other comedies has for me. Blazing Saddles, which... Have you seen Blazing Saddles? I have a long time ago. I really want to revisit it because I have good memories of it, but I wonder. Uh, what, what the thing is, is what makes it so crazy or, and so edgy at its time was that it was dealing very bluntly with the race card issue. And it was also pressing buttons, the breaking rules that you weren't supposed to do in the theater. There's a scene in Blazing Saddles that just has a bunch of cowboys farting. And that's what's funny, is that we're hearing farting in a movie. And at the time it came out, it was kind of a big deal. And now it's just a scene with a bunch of cowboys farting, right? Uh, or, or at the end of Blazing Saddles, the, the, the final chase actually goes off of the that movie and starts to chase through other several different movies that are being shot on different sound stages throughout the and they break the fourth wall entirely and then just roll the credits without resolution so a lot of what was making that movie funny was all the rules that they were breaking for its day this movie young frankenstein is just straight up funny and i think it will remain straight up funny for a long time i think it's going to age like wine <laughs> i really do I think. Uh, what do you mean going to? It was released uh, coming up almost forty years ago. Yeah, but uh, um, still good. Go still good today. Still good. I will say there is. Uh, it's interesting you brought up Blazing Saddles because Blazing Saddles had the same setup of the joke. There is one part of this film. It's a very small scene um, that I thought the joke did not age well, uh, and that is when the Frankenstein monster discovering his sexuality 
uh, puts himself upon uh, Dr. Frankenstein's fiance, yes. and she is not into it until, until his glorious is. penis convinces her otherwise. Yes. And uh, he, I, yeah. I, before this, used to refer to this as the Revenge of the Nerds problem. There's a yeah. classic 80s comedy called Revenge of the Nerds where something very similar happens. Um, I think what you have there is Madeline Kahn really selling it. And, like, uh, it didn't feel rapey. It felt more like a punchline. And that they ended up together like an old married couple where he's reading the newspaper and kind of annoyed with her constant chatter. Like, yeah, I get I get what you're saying. But it's a real relationship. It wasn't like she was raped and then and then he lumbered off into the forest or something well, like that. Well, sure, it turned out fine because it's a it's a comedy, comedy. But in the moment, it didn't feel... And like, it's a very... Like, even three years ago, maybe the vibe would have been different. But it's a very different uh, in the age of world too. out there in terms of stuff like that. Okay. And like I said, in Blazing Saddles, that joke worked better... Because the person was already going to have uh, sex with him. Yeah. Um, Blazing Saddles, there's a German lady that has sex with the black. He's the sheriff, right? Yeah. I don't remember. Um, and the idea is that she was seducing him. But he sexes her so good, he seduces her. Uh, there's a hilarious... This, she's all like, she doesn't want it. Yeah. And there isn't... You know, it's like you said, it's like a revenge of the nerds. She does not want it. It turns out later that she decides that she does, but she still said no oh, and no. was very clearly saying no. And it felt uncomfortable to me yeah. that that was not being respected, even if the, you could justify it by saying it's uh, it's basically um, uh, an invalid monster who hasn't learned anything yet and doesn't know any better. It still feels weird in the same way that it would feel bad if he had thrown the girl into the well it's not fully the monster's fault he doesn't know it still yeah. feels bad but it i guess the joke might also be that this this child monster is an ideal husband for this woman madeline khan also in blazing saddles has a hilarious song and dance number as a prostitute who's been stuffed out just basically the point of the song is look i'd love to you guys but i am just I have been fucked to death. I just cannot do it anymore, right? And uh, I don't know how well that ages in the Me Too environment that we're in now either. But I think Madeline Kahn was a straight-up genius. I thought she's a fantastic actress, really, really talented. Um, and again, I understand what you're saying. For some reason, that really bothered me in Revenge of the Nerds, and it bothered me less here. But uh, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. I, I I haven't seen Revenge of the Nerds. I know of the scene, and I'll say even just knowing of the scene, it bothers me less here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you're talking about how the comedy ages. That's the one point where I'm like, I bet this doesn't age very well. Right. Um, well, and in again, fact, if you were to make, and I don't, I don't believe you should do this. Each uh, creative work as it is, or I guess as the creator intended it. Um, except for you, George Lucas, hands off. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, I, I, get... I think you could even just maybe cut that scene out entirely and just have them together later and you wouldn't be fully surprised based off of how Madeline Kahn's character had been yeah. up to that point. But I don't, like I said, I don't think that's necessary and I don't think that that's beneficial. I'm just saying, as far as the flow of the movie goes, it would probably still work. I don't. Um, I don't necessarily believe. In, I don't believe necessarily in taking scissors to things like the past is our past, and, and live with yeah. live with the mistakes, learn with, from the mistakes. I get that. Um, exactly. Generally speaking, I think the heart's in the right place. And again, I uh, 
it's a strange place to be in where, you know, you got to be careful with comedy these days. I absolutely understand that rape as humor is, is, is not a funny thing. Trying to make a punchline out of rape. No, not, not going to fly. But I'm also in this sort of era of, I don't want to take the paintbrush out of anybody's town. I don't want to say you're not allowed to do X because I just thought that's against my, <laughs> it's against where I come from, from a creative process. Just know that if you choose to do X, you're going to, to greatly, greatly hurt your audience or, or, you know, limit your, <laughs> your prospects. Uh, it's, it's a sort of weird time for comedy that we're in. Uh, what I, I think about things in the movie, like, uh, when he's helping Terry Gar out of the of the wagon and he turns over and sees the huge knockers on the door and says, what knockers? And she looks at her breast and says, oh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a sexist joke, but you know what else? It's also a completely harmless joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, in this, and in this situation, like, you could be offended on behalf of the character Idna, whatever the character's name is. Um... Frau. Uh, Frau Brucha. Was that her? Frau Brucha, who always made the horses, Winnie? That's, yeah, that's not no, Terry no, no, Gold. That's no, no, I was, I was mixing up the names. Yeah. Inga, you could be offended on behalf of her, but that character wasn't harmed at all. Like, she was like, oh, cool. Yeah, a compliment. Like, you're right. That might be a sexist joke, but I, I feel like that was fine for the character, so yeah. good enough for you. Uh, the movie doesn't ask us to judge, you know, Gene Wilder for cheating on his fiance. <laughs> we understand the attraction to Terry Gar, and we don't hate him yeah. for it. it, you know. Uh, but you know, the, there's some loose morals about the movie, but I think for the most part, the comedy is just—it just wants to make you laugh. And I think of all the movies we talked about, it's clearly the most successful at making me laugh. And uh, and the funny thing is, my takeaway wasn't that this movie was super funny. It's that it really nailed its dramatic elements, which, again, I will say are notably of uh, higher quantity than in other Mel Brooks movies. Like, space, you never fucking cared about anybody in Spaceballs. There was no emotional gravitas in Spaceballs. But you you, you do care in uh, Young Frankenstein. And I'm my impression is that the people like you, like my wife, that remember this movie fondly are not remembering that element of it, but coming at it from the for the first time today, as I have uh, with all my um, experience of watching movies, which is plentiful, might I say, <laughs> I think this movie does entirely right by its narrative stakes. Um, I fear for, again, the little girl when Frankenstein comes up to her, or Frankenstein's monster, sorry, mm -hmm. uh, comes up to her. Uh, I fear for the monster when he misses a step tap dancing and the mob is like, I guess this is it, let's lynch him. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how I, it turns into King Kong has, at the end, hey? Pardon? It's interesting how the movie turns into King Kong at the end. Yes. He brings the monster from his home to the Broadway stage to do, a, in this case, a song and dance number, and all the flash bulbs drive the monster into a frenzy. It's like they started doing a lampoon of Frankenstein and weirdly morphed into King Kong. I always thought that was an interesting choice of the movie. Sure. <laughs> but why it, It's not? an homage to the era, yeah. But it all, it all works for me, and that's the part that uh, has stuck with me since then. Like, I, did, I didn't find myself later going, 
huge knockers. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I did, I was looking back on it being like, man, I'm glad all those characters got out alive because at the end of it, I was endeared to them all. Oh, I think it's hilarious. I still think it's hilarious. I think Marty Feldman is Igor, who is the guy with the moving hump. Uh, is amazing. I think there's that scene where Gene Wilder t- makes them promise that lock me in the cell with the creature and I'm going to reach him. And no matter how much I beg you, you're not allowed to let me out of this room. Like, that scene will never not be funny to me, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the scene where Cloris Leachman is playing the uh, violin to lure the monster and the monster's like reaching and grabbing the air as if he can actually capture the music in the air that he loves so much. There's, there's just small details throughout the movie I think are just hilarious. And, uh, yeah, I I will... I don't I don't feel the need to apologize for anything, really, in Young Frankenstein. I uh, It's a classic. I don't think it's being argued, and I think it shall stay that way. just saying to Eric that critics are bullshit I don't know why I felt like I, other than Young Frankenstein I was very very grumpy about all of these movies and like a couple episodes ago I went off about all of the things I didn't like about the new It movie except for that I really liked the new It movie so generally speaking I'm sorry if I came off like a curmudgeon this episode I did like most of these movies generally I just felt like it was easier to pick at the stuff that didn't work than to embrace the stuff that was that said, Eric, thank you so much for being here once again. Uh, what was your least favorite of these six movies and why? This is going to stun everybody, but fuck parents. Right. Uh, I I just feel like parents is this big heap of failed attempts at being insightful. Um I like I just I wasn't on board. I know I I don't know if you were complimenting it or not, but you were like, "Hey, this movie is only an hour and 20 minutes thank god and but like watching it you could have sworn that three hours of your life was just sucked out of you it's so (laughs) slow and not i think in a meaningful way again i think that all of the stuff that should have been clever about the movie wasn't handled quite right for it to work for me i didn't have fun watching it i don't i don't want to watch it ever again um maybe if there was some kind of a remake uh i know that's a four-letter word uh, among some uh, film aficionados. But maybe if someone was like, hey, I want to take some of the core concepts of this and really, really run with it, I'd, I'd watch that, but I had no fun watching this. In number five, I'm going to say probably some guy that kills people. Um, I found, especially the character of the daughter, I found the movie endearing enough uh, but it was also slow, and, and it was also obvious. Um, and regardless of whether it was just trying to make me smile, I felt like there was some other way to tell this story uh, more successfully than ended up panning out. Um, I enjoyed, ultimately, Some Guy Who Kills People. Uh, unlike with Parents, I wouldn't say that I felt like my time was wasted with it. Um, but there, there's just always hints at something more there. Even... 
even though it definitely does have its successes and it does have its laughs and it definitely has its character moments for sure. Um, it just didn't make the cut against some of these other ones. Um, this is probably, I don't know. I'm going to, I know the idea is that I have a list made up right now, but honestly, I'm kind of flipping between pick of destiny and ghost town fourth. Um, I think, I think ultimately you're right. Uh, Ghost Town is next. It is too generic of a film to make a big splash. Although I enjoyed it thoroughly because I do enjoy the comedic stylings of Ricky Gervais. And I thought that it was a charming enough movie. Um, if not interesting, which it really wasn't. Um, it. It's fun enough, but it's the movie you've seen a thousand times in many ways. Uh, speaking of stoner movies we've seen a thousand times, this pick of destiny <laughs> is number... I, did I call it Ghost Town number five? Whatever. So this would be the next third. one, the third. Third one is Pick of Destiny. Okay. Um, uh, it, it also is a fun movie. Uh, I think you need to be prepped for some Jack Black-ass humor. Um... Kyle Gass, I guess, is of a similar note. The music is incredible, as we said. It's like it's legitimately great music. It is. I uh, I don't want to take away your uh, definitions because I think you nailed it pretty cleverly, uh, Larry, when you called it basically a sketch comedy. Yeah. Um, if you're prepared for that, I see no reason why you can't go into the Pick of Destiny and enjoy it. Um, it's not a. It, it doesn't hit that cult classic uh, note for me in that I'm not itching to watch Pick of Destiny again and again and again, but it is fine enough. And I do think that even if it's not a, a, a great product in and of itself, I think it is a great enough insight into the creativity of Jack Black and Kyle Gass um, that it's, it's worthwhile for that reason. Yeah. Uh, next up, I have... The Burbs. Uh, I we covered this movie pretty thoroughly. It's a really good movie. It's a really good time capsule. It's fun to watch the actors. It's fun to watch the scenes. I do think that it has social commentary to say. Um, for some of these movies, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that everyone watch them. I can't think of a single person that I would not recommend go see The Burbs. Not at all. I think it works for pretty much everybody. Um, and that leaves Young Frankenstein. And it's, again, I think it's entirely interesting because I was smitten by this as a narrative movie. Interesting. Uh, the comedy is, it's Mel Brooks humor. And I laughed during it and I found it funny at points and charming. And the part that I mentioned about the force, and maybe this saying this will come back to bite me. Like, it, I thought it was the, the force sex scene. I thought was noteworthy, but it didn't damage the movie for me overall. Right. Um, and so uh, I think this is the best among them. Young Frankenstein is a horribly uh, creative movie. Uh, very well done. Um, incredibly well directed. V very funny, but I also think surprisingly serious. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I recommend you all go see it. Larry, what's your list? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, damn, if we're not really close, and you're going to be pissed off where we're different. I, I know you're going to be mad about this one. 
Because oh, really, no. if you, you shift one thing and our lists actually match. And I'm sure if I played this back, that it would sound like your list and my list should match. But alas, I don't I have... I should have put the verbs at top, damn I, it. I, uh, I don't have the same hate for parents that you do, but I am going to put it in last place. I see what it's going for, and I appreciate the artistic approach. But at the end of the day, I think it failed at closing the deal and being about something more than these strange scenes and images it does have a weird dreamlike atmosphere to it and i know i clearly found it more interesting than you did and i just found it kind of an odd 80 minutes but as a movie no i think yeah it's hmm. it's one of those movies i feel like maybe only i would watch <laughs> you know it's just like <laughs> there it is um if you're curious about it and if you're curious about bob balaban why not have a look um but no it's more odd than than good. So bottom of the I think, list. I think by this point after hearing us talk about it, if you're if you've heard this and you're like, I still want to give parents a go, you're probably right. It's probably the movie for you. Right. Yeah. Weirdly, even though it did make me laugh out loud more than any other movie, I put the Tenacious D movie in fifth place. No. Uh it's not really a movie. Like I said, in the end of the day, it's just not really a movie. There's a car alarm going off outside. It's irritating me. Uh, it's barely coming through on my end. It's probably right. getting picked up by your mic. Okay, so it, it's barely we'll, a movie. We'll just deal with it. We'll do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a few moments. There's a scene where, like, uh, Jack Black tries to do a guitar slide on carpet and utterly, <laughs> totally fails cuts up his knees and just disintegrates his guitar beneath him and then starts crying because he so wanted to impress Kyle Gass. And I laugh out loud. There's moments throughout the movie that I think, yeah, that's really strong. But again, there's no A, B, and C to this movie and uh, very, very loose. It's a series of scenes more than it's a movie. It plays more like 90 minutes of sketch comedy than like a movie. So I have to say as a movie, as a piece of peace, yeah, I don't think it's as good. As my number fourth place movie, and you can predict the rest of my list, by the way, uh, which was some guy who killed people. I think it's hearts in the right place, and I think that there's some good goofy humor, particularly with the way they handle the cops. But it's just a movie that's most of the way there, and I think that's going about two gears too slow. I think like we needed a little bit more momentum, a little bit more gas in the engine, and uh, the, the, the movie would get all the way there. It's there enough that it's charming and hard to hate, but it's not there enough that I'd be like, yes, yes, you must see it. There is a movie called Some Guy Who Kills People, and it's about as deep as that name would suggest. <laughs> In third place, I'm going to put Ricky Gervais's uh, Ghost Town. Uh, again, it's a movie that's just borrowed from elements of other movies, and they put Ricky Gervais in the center of it, so it's got that flavor to it. And uh, if you like Ricky Gervais, you're going to like the movie. It's got a good loose charm to it. But I, it's just in one of these movies where, uh, considering the talent involved, I kind of wanted this to be kind of a great movie or kind of a smart movie. And in the end of the day, it's just charming. Charming's enough, but uh, I, I guess it's a movie that's haunted by what I wanted it to be. <laughs> so it still fought its way to, to third place, which is, you know, I guess pretty high on the list. 
the last two movies are the two movies that I would just absolutely recommend to anybody, and they're in the same order you place them. Number two is The Burbs. Uh, Joe Dante is a reliable sort of across-the-board entertainer, you know? <laughs> uh, check out his entire filmography, but definitely don't miss The Burbs. I love this era of Tom Hanks' career. I love seeing young, beautiful Carrie Fisher being funny. I love Bruce Dern. I, I just think that the the whole world of that aw shucks suburbia that, that we don't see anymore because it's sort of been acknowledged as a thing that doesn't really exist. But in 1989, we could pretend that it did, and uh, it's very well encapsulated by the movie. So check out The Burbs. Uh, number one, I mean, Mel Brooks, he's a legend. Over and above being a comedic genius, I mean, just look at his production career, you know. <laughs> he brought us The Elephant Man, you know. He brought us a lot of interesting movies that just as a producer, not as a filmmaker. And um, he knows film. Part of what makes this movie interesting is that it respects the movies it's lampooning. It's not like this scary movie lampoons where it's like, ha ha, aren't horror movies stupid? This is a comedy horror movie that loves, loves horror movies. Um, the only thing I would disagree with you is that I, I didn't, I don't, I find this movie much more of a hilarious thing than as a real horror narrative at all. I think it's a series of pretty obvious gags, but they come at a good enough clip. And uh, they're delivered by an absolutely perfect cast. So, number one, easy call, Young Frankenstein. Dude, we were so close. The thing is, is I don't think that we're that different on the list where we feel is the thing that bugs me about it more than anything else. Like, I feel like we're really close, but damn it, the list isn't reflecting it. You, you, yeah, you I, I mean, uh, your list did surprise me more than I thought it would. Uh, it is like that, like with historic horrors, where we almost win uh, six for we almost win zero for six. We also almost win uh, six. Uh, six for six. It's just that, like, it, it, if you think of each of the tiers, like, oh, there's three different tiers of two movies, and those two movies get flipped around, but right. the general idea is the same. You could get a very different list while having very similar intentions. My point is, you should keep doing this show because one of these days you're gonna win this. So, <laughs> all right. I hope uh, I hope you mean that because we have some chatting to do right after this. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for participating in episode one twenty six. Is there any message you'd like to get out to the kids on the internets? Watch more movies. What are you doing with your time? Jeez. <laughs> when you're not listening to podcasts about movies, you should probably be watching. There it is, all done, all in the rearview mirror. Episode 126 comes to an end. I hope you keep on listening to Rank and Review. We're going to start an epic two-part tape on the best horror movies of the 1990s starting in the next episode, so stay tuned for that, and please send me feedback. My name's Larry Parsons. You can write me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. I genuinely appreciate you listening to and supporting this podcast. I may not know you, but you are my friend.